0: Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, this is the Spoken Edition of Wired. Inside Cuba's DIY Internet Revolution by Antonio Garcia Martinez. You'll be sitting in the magnificently beautiful ruin of Havana, surrounded by decaying stonework and pastel-colored Detroit rolling iron. And you'll be ignoring it all to swipe down on your Facebook feed like a cocaine addict licking his snort mirror, which you are, of course, a depraved cokehead trying to get a hit. And you'll scroll over the same content you swiped over 15 minutes ago, pretending that it might have refreshed and that it might provide the dopamine rush your brain is demanding. Yet it does not refresh. It will not refresh. Your fix will come in the form of a small green scratch-off card, almost like a lottery ticket and usually costing a quarter of the average weekly Cuban wage. Some quick work with a coin will reveal two horribly long strings of numbers. And along with a hunched-over clutch of other addicts, you'll enter the numbers into the password page of Etexa, Cuba's government-run telecommunications monopoly, whose design aesthetics are solidly 1997. And then, nothing. Your phone will fail to connect or its signal will quickly fade since your chosen hotspot, like most of the city's hotspots, is overwhelmed by demand. The government claims there are 60 hotspots in Havana, up from a handful a few years ago. That's one for every 35,000 habaneros. You'll try again for a secure connection, then again, then again, going on five minutes, then ten minutes. Sweet holy Jesus, yes! The joy when your phone startles awake with a burst of delayed notifications will be obscene and quasi-sexual. The screenful of bubbles from every app you use, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, will seem an orgiastic feast on the order of George Costanza's sex pastrami baseball trifecta. Madly, you'll swipe, 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 trying to get the pixel hit you need, the dose you thought you could never go without, and then failure. The website freezes, the app crashes, the shaky Etexa network can't handle the up-to-date versions of Face, Google, Insta, Snap, Twitter, and you'll restart the app and pull down on your feed frantically again and again and again. In Cuba, where Wi-Fi is both slow and terrible, you will be an emissary from the future, a hint of the degeneracy to come. You're a full-on mainlining internet junkie with the world's uproar piped into your head 24-7, your emotional landscape terraformed and buffeted by whatever some narcissist just posted on Instagram or some windbag on Twitter. But like the not-even-once warnings about drugs like meth, you know that after the internet is in Cubans' pockets, it's over. Even backward, bitter-ender communist Cuba will become part of the vast data borg, tied via arterial fiber-optic cables and Wi-Fi to the same pandemonium that gave us cat videos, live-streamed murders, and President Donald J. Trump. The real irony is that if the Internet does topple the government and bring democracy to this democracy-starved island, it'll happen just as democracy itself is being undone by Facebook and every other filter-bubble-creating, political-polarization-amplifying, algorithm-optimized feed. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, and also oversimplifying, because the Cubans, the very resourceful Cubans, haven't exactly been sitting around sipping mojitos as the digital revolution passed them by. They have workarounds. Oh, do they have workarounds. Before my visit earlier this year, I'd never been to Cuba, though Cuba had certainly been to me. The Miami of my 80s childhood was a suburban reboot of pre-revolutionary Cuba, filled with people who still toasted El Año Proximo en La Habana, next year in Havana, at important occasions. Everything from family letters to fresh-off-the-raft waiters kept us apprised of the increasingly desperate conditions. In Miami, even the dog catcher had to have a foreign policy toward the island, and Cuba was all anyone ever really talked about. In Silicon Valley, where I worked at companies like Facebook and Twitter for the earlier part of this decade, Cuba was generally regarded, when it was regarded at all, as a technological curiosity. This socialist workers' paradise was a time capsule where techno-capitalism's make-the-world-more-open-and-connected idealism hadn't yet delivered its liberal democratic fruit. The underlying assumption held that whether it was Facebook pages for Cuban businesses or Airbnb tourists from Texas, the Internet's arrival would lead to a near instantaneous transformation of Cuban society from Soviet-era holdout to just another part of the globe requiring a dedicated user support team. It seemed like only a matter of time. Yet, other than a few rumored experiments beginning in the 90s, the Cuban government had a highly restrictive Internet policy until 2015, when a Texas first Wi-Fi hotspots started popping up throughout the capital. Walk down a street in Old Havana, and you'll note a flock of smartphone-clutching loiterers either standing or squatting in a park as they try to get on a Texas Wi-Fi. This is Cuban Internet where access to non-state-sanctioned websites is blocked, the government snoops on anything unencrypted, and the service is grindingly slow when it exists at all. I'm told that fast Internet access is the exclusive domain of state institutions like universities and very large, mostly foreign corporations like hotels. Short of a few government professionals, nobody can check their email or surf the web legally at home without permission from the government. There are even some startups capitalizing on the rarity, shoddiness, and expense of Cuban Internet. Nales, a mobile messaging platform co-founded by Diana Elion Benitez-Pereira, packages online weather reports, horoscopes, sports scores, foreign exchange rates, and other basic news into text messages that Cubans can read on their phones. Given the rickety and expensive nature of Cuban connectivity, nobody wastes time or bandwidth trying to stream an episode of Game of Thrones or a YouTube instructional video. Atexa Wi-Fi, when you can get it, is purely social and communicative. Chatting with the uncle in Miami who sends you $200 every month via a remittance company, the nephew who moved to Spain, the cousin outside the capital, that's what the Atexa hotspot is for. Which brings us to the first workaround. Every week, more than a terabyte of data is packaged into external hard drives known as El Paquete Semanal, the weekly package. It is the Internet distilled down to its purest, most consumable, and least interactive form, its content. This collection of video, song, photo, and text files from the outside world is cobbled together by various media smugglers known as paqueteros, and it travels around the island from person to person, percolating quickly from Havana to the furthest reaches in less than a day, and constituting what would be known in techie lingo as a sneaker net, a network that transmits data via shoe rubber, bus, horseback, or anything else. Oddly, it works. Cubans can be as conversant as any Netflix and chill American about popular shows like House of Cards or Black Mirror, and they drop allusions to the Lannisters and Omar Little constantly. It's been reported that as many as 3 million Cubans access content via the Paquette. And to understand the Paquette as well as the other epic acts of Cuban hackery I'm going to describe, you need a Spanish lesson you didn't get in high school. An important word to know in Cuba is resolver. While literally meaning to resolve, in practice, it's closer to Silicon Valley's notion of life hacking, but without the humble, braggy lifestyle posturing. Need to navigate the endless hurdles involved in getting a small business license? Resolver. Need to bribe a doorman to get into a popular nightlife spot like the ever teeming Fabrica de Arte Cubano, Resolver. Need to string 200 yards of cable and an antenna through neighbors' patios so you can siphon a nearby Atexa Park's Wi-Fi signal and maybe check your email slowly and illegally from home, Resolver. Cubans are the kings and queens of Resolver, the virtuosi of Resolver. It's the only thing that's kept them afloat since the special period in the early 90s when the Soviet Union and its subsidy disappeared, leaving Cuba's economy stranded and Cubans themselves hungry. But arrayed against the forces of resourceful resolver lies another important word, complicado. Want to talk to the dissonant journalists who scoff at Cuban censorship and are routinely harassed and jailed? Es complicado. Want to get a passport and visa to travel abroad? Es complicado. My last Spanish lesson, no es fácil, it's not easy. This is the closing refrain to almost every practical Cuban conversation, usually uttered with a resigned shrug. The island is one immense battlefield of resolver versus complicado, with a decaying colonial ruin as stage and no es fácil as the Greek chorus. Central Habana is the ass-end of a Potemkin village the government has renovated for tourist consumption. Just west of picturesque Old Havana and east of modern Verdado, gutted shells of colonial-era buildings stand among the odd pile of collapsed rubble or uncollected garbage, squint, and on some blocks you'd be in a post-apocalyptic city instead of Cuba. Even the taxi driver gets lost in this overlooked part of the city and drops me blocks from my destination, forcing me to walk the heat-baked streets with my offline mapping app open. Trying to tease out the numbering, I note a hand-painted sign over one ramshackle door announcing itself as the seat of the local CDR chapter. The organization's logo features a Cuban flag-clad patriot raising a machete to strike, emblazoned with the motto, Con la Guardia en Alto, with one's guard up. This unique product of the Cuban revolution is worth a detour. The CDR, Comité de Defensa de la Revolución, is Robespierrean in both name and function and serves as a nationwide network of informants and agents monitoring the population from every balcony and stoop. Convening a group of intellectuals to discuss dissonant politics or even hackers to discuss an open-source project, you'll have a uniformed agent from Minent. Ministerio del Interior de la República de Cuba, charged with law enforcement, knocking at your door, courtesy of your snooping neighbor. Incredibly, the government has actually erected a museum to the CDR in Old Havana to commemorate the network of local rats that has helped keep it in power. I finally figure out where the hell I am and realize my destination is an incongruously tidy, well-painted two-story building that doesn't look like it just got hit with an artillery shell. I knock and my contact, Yuri, opens the door and lets me into an ample front room, empty save for a fatigued-looking, sweat-covered guy in a tank top seated on a lone chair. Unusually for the ever-sociable Cubans, Yuri doesn't introduce me and continues to the back of the house. The bare walls and almost total lack of furniture give the place the feel of a safe house. Arriving in a windowless back room, I see the raison d'etre for this operation, a large tower computer the likes of which only hardcore gamers maintain in the U.S., The cover is off, cables snake out to racks bristling with external hard drives, and two monitors display what appears to be sophisticated file management software. It's the source for one of Cuba's paquetes, a vital connection to the outside world. What Yuri and his competitors and conspirators do isn't strictly illegal—alegal is the preferred Cuban word for this—unlegal, but it's not so unlegal that I couldn't track down Yuri through a few discreet inquiries to acquaintances in Havana's small tech community. My sources tell me there are a half-dozen paqueteros with nationwide distribution, most of whom typically avoid reporters and self-promotion. The paquetes sell themselves. But Yuri, who says he recently fell out with his partners in a major paquete operation and decided to strike out on his own, was open to talking. After a few phone calls and a quick get-to-know-you, Yuri is taking me through his workflow, ably and quickly hopping around the file structure of this week's media shipment. With a few keystrokes and clicks on various pop-up windows, he copies a new file into the going paquete. Arranging content in a standard and orderly directory structure, películas clásicas, classic films, interesantes y variados, mostly ripped YouTube videos, deportes semanales, weekly sports, everything from NHL to Formula One and even esports, and the ever important telenovelas, soap operas. I ask him if any of the content is physically smuggled from Miami, and he denies it, claiming it would be too expensive. In any case, customs would catch much of it. But how do you download this much data then, I ask, somewhat aghast at the week's worth of global Internet output he's accumulated in this dark back room. He points to a pile of green Etexa scratch-off cards next to his monitor and claims he pays people, including a family member, to sit in public parks with Wi-Fi and download content for five hours a day. That's who the sweaty guy in the front room was, evidently, back from a long hot day of downloading. I do the mental math. One estimate found that Etexa Wi-Fi hotspots have a bandwidth of 1 megabit per second. Even assuming this is true, and assuming Yuri and his employees managed to suck up all that bandwidth by sitting in public parks at odd times, it would still take more than 2,400 person-hours of constant downloading to capture the terabyte of data that goes into a single week's paquete. This seems at the very least improbable. What seems more likely is that Yuri is lying, in the way that so many Cubans lie about how they manage to survive. Perhaps he's paying someone with fast internet, a network administrator in some ministry, a hotel worker with access to expensive commercial internet, to download large swaths of the paquete for him. But he denies it. The business end of paquete distribution is relatively simple, and a drug trafficking comparison might be helpful. Yuri sells his master copy to a distributor in every province, who then resells to regional distributors in Cienfuegos, Santiago de Cuba, Pinar del Rio, and wherever else, and eventually to the guy on the street. Thus does data on wheels radiate out from that backroom to every corner of Cuba, and a river of coins and bills trickles back, forming an eventual torrent, the usual bits-for-money internet alchemy becoming a physical one. And the government's take on all this? While initially hostile, the Pacateros and the authorities have reached a livable detente, with one side agreeing to ban all political and religious content, and the other monitoring the output, but mostly taking an uncharacteristic laissez-faire attitude. Cubans are on their third generation raised under the suffocating weight of an all-seeing, all-knowing government, and many of them reflexively avoid any topic of conversation or media consumption that smacks of political dissent. The paqueteros just channel that subconscious urge and conform to the government's total control of the media. Resolver beats complicado this round. It almost always does, especially when there's real money to be made. With his angular features and slicked hair streaked with blonde, Roher Wariste Guede reminds me visually of a young vanilla ice. His demeanor, however, is completely unwrapper-like, and he works in the recently renovated front room and hallway of what appears to be his parents' home in Vedado. Waristi runs the somewhat cheesily named High Vista Promotions, one of Cuba's pioneering internet ad networks. In a landscape largely devoid of advertising, other than for the government, Cuba's jerry-rigged media world has digital inducements to consume. As a demo, Juaristi browses the paquete for me, navigating a Taiwanese-made external hard drive loaded with that week's content as if it were some interactive browser. Inside every file directory is a selection of images and video ads alongside the actual content, The typical Cuban user might open the ads accidentally as they browse, and they'll soon no doubt develop a blindness to them, as we do to banner ads. High Vista can also superimpose pre-roll banners on the videos themselves, messaging that is much harder to avoid. Without knowing it, Waristi has reproduced the business model of internet advertising circa 2007, before Google's double-click and programmatic advertising technology crushed it namely you have a rate card that is just that a list of prices for a list of ad placements based on some vague mythological notion of the value of each run of network the entire picate premium the reality show folder the low rent remnant cat videos and so on this model was the bread and butter of online advertising in the jackass low-tech pre-facebook google days I mention as much to Waristi, and he looks at me blankly as if he has no idea what I'm talking about, which makes it only more impressive. High Vista clients also receive a weekly report detailing where in the labyrinthine directory structure of the paquete their ad appears. Lack of network connectivity makes any real ad attribution impossible, and my internal ad technology guy winced at the untrackability of it all. This is the fascinating thing about Cuba's emerging digital class, especially coming from Silicon Valley. Their major issues mimic our own, albeit in cruder and more improvised form. Like some weird species in an isolated redoubt like Australia, Cuba has been evolving convergently, if mostly independently, to the outside world, even if several technical generations later. Turns out that if you connect twitchy, narcissistic, boredom-prone humans via digital media, no matter how makeshift the plumbing, they behave in exactly the same way. If the logistical effort of transporting a physical piece of hardware to millions of people so they can keep up with Silicon Valley sounds ambitious, it pales in comparison to the makeshift technical marvel that makes up Cuba's other Internet workaround. Named SNET, short for Street Network, it's a home-brewed intranet stretching across the capital and parts of the provinces that reproduces much of the consumer internet we know in the free world. With no fast, affordable access to Facebook, Instagram, or online audio streaming, the Cubans have simply created their own versions of these sites and services internally in a wholly separate network and they are quickly rushing into the same minefield of acceptable use policies, cyberbullying, pornography filtering, memes, and general online mayhem that Americans have been suffering for years. I set out to meet two of SNET's administrators in the epicenter of Havana, the corner of L Street and 23rd Avenue, smack in the heart of Vedado. My contact Ian appears from out of the crowds milling in the street. Thin and bespeckled, he is an economics student at the University of Havana, and when not talking about SNET, he likes expounding on Cuba's economy. His companion is more out of nerd-central casting. With a pasty complexion, the monitor tan stood out in a sunny climate, and a corpulent physique accompanied by a trollish laugh, this is the subreddit inhabitant known the world over. We all pile into an overpriced yellow cab and Ian instructs the driver west to the furthest outskirts of the city. An hour later, we arrive at the dusty and dilapidated far end of Havana. A number of clustered, low-slung buildings with metal roofs serve as family compounds. We converge on one that features the incongruous sight, given the somewhat ramshackle surroundings, of an immense antenna tower sprouting from the roof. Complete with guy wires strung to the ground, it stretches several stories into the air and bristles with what seems like dozens of antennas, large and small, pointed in all directions. This structure is known as a pilar. Strolling into the house, as a frequent guest would, Ian introduces me to a group of a dozen or so men who proceed to scrutinize the American visitor whose presence they collectively approved. The assembled SNET dignitaries then began a patchwork account of how this beast came into being. The whole thing started back in the early aughts with handmade antennas so that gamers wouldn't have to carry their desktop machines to each other's houses to play StarCraft or Counter-Strike. The nine original wireless gaming networks started spreading like a moss over all of Havana, and they joined forces in 2015 to create a city-spanning hole that could be loosely administered in a sort of controlled chaos. They would eventually start communicating with smaller and smaller antennas, It's a semi-improvised but functional hierarchy, completely analogous to our Internet, with the pilares uniting the various far-flung regions of the city. In modern Internet parlance, we'd call this the Tier 1 network. Below the Pilar in this hierarchy is a node, which is a miniature version of a Pilar in that it features servers and antennas pointed in multiple directions. A node most closely resembles an ISP that serves one local neighborhood within a larger region. A node, in turn, provides short-range connectivity to a set of sub-nodes, which are the final access points, almost like your home Internet setup. This entire SNET edifice we're describing lives in total isolation from the Internet we know, an island both literally and metaphorically from the buzzing Internet continent we all take for granted. Enter google.com in a browser on SNET, and you'll go nowhere. But enter the URL of a file, and your subnode will route your request to a parent node, and then a pilar, and from there to the regional pilar whose nodes and subnodes have the requested file or service. What speed do users get? Ian pings his own pilar in Habana del Este, clear on the other side of the capital. It returns with a latency of 11 milliseconds. Fast! Faster probably than pinging Google on your average US home broadband connection. And what's actually on SNET other than gaming servers? There's an Instagram clone called Foro Wi-Fi Net. There's a Reddit clone called Netlab with themed subreddits, trolls, and the whole armamentarium of weaponized, amplified, and threaded nerdy pissiness you see elsewhere. There is the Facebook clone, Sigeme, Follow Me, as well as Internet forums powered by PHPBB, that ancient workhorse code project that runs every hobby forum, from knitting to jeep repair, all hosted locally. To conform to SNET's aggressively enforced terms of service, none of these service providers or site administrators can display consumer advertising or charge users to access their sites. Their creators launch these services just for the sake of creating and gaining status points on SNET. Like the bygone internet pioneers, before Silicon Valley became about in office kombucha taps, 6,000 word medium think pieces, and $50 million funding rounds. As with the pacateros, the admins preemptively self censor, banning any political or religious content from the very outset. Accounts vary, but the SNET admins insist that the network never veers into illegality, and the final vindication was a post in Cuba Debate, a government-affiliated blog, in late 2016. Complete with names and photos, the same blog that once published Fidel's speeches praised the plucky gamers. With no real money and working in a dictatorship's gray zone, the gamers have cobbled together a faster network with more services than anything this socialist worker's paradise has managed to produce. I sit in mute admiration as Ian shows me clones of billion-dollar U.S. Internet entities, all of it existing in near isolation from the outside world just a 100 miles from the U.S., As often happens with outside observers of the Cuban reality, my two recurring thoughts are, by God, what could these people accomplish if they didn't have the government guerrilla sitting on their faces, asphyxiating everything, or if they had easy access to all that Silicon Valley has to offer? The detailed and unsolicited guidance on how to bring home a visitante nocturno from my Airbnb hostess is worth recording here for posterity. I should call the hostess once I know I'm coming home with someone so she can be there to officially register them and send their identification details to the state. Should my new friend rob me in my sleep, the señora will report them to the police and the full machinery of Cuban state suppression will be engaged to hunt them down. And hunt them they will. The señora reported that a guest of hers had a bottle of expensive cologne stolen, and police found the thief and returned the cologne. Totalitarianism has certain advantages. One big disadvantage is dictatorship's inability to create a propitious business environment, which helps explain why the tech startup culture in Cuba remains half-hidden in the shadows. When President Obama was making noises about Cuba in early 2016, a conga line of tech heavyweights mustered to help open Cuba. Months later, most of that amounted to nothing more than angling for a photo op with a popular president and his big foreign policy success. Since then, only a handful of U.S. companies have made any headway, most notably Google and Airbnb, the former investing in servers within the country and the latter really going the distance. Airbnb managed to draft off an existing cottage industry in casas particulares, private homes, effectively bed and breakfasts, and conspired to hack a payment scheme in a country without accessible payment systems. Airbnb complies with the treasury department's formerly pro forma travel restrictions now presumably enforced by the trump administration asking which of 12 very fuzzy reasons for cuba travel an american uses as tourism cover Guests will then remit payment to Airbnb, which then transmits the money to an existing remittance payment company in Miami, which then sends bagmen to deliver cash payments to Airbnb hosts on the island. It's an impressive workaround. But most of the American entrepreneurship machine made a few visits, posted some cool pics, and disappeared without a trace. Everyone back home in California I've talked to about Cuba thought the Obama policy would change everything. I didn't meet a single Cuban who felt the policy had changed much of anything, though they certainly welcomed more openness rather than less. The only future event they were eagerly awaiting was the planned resignation of Raul Castro as president of Cuba in 2018. Even the most optimistic startup founders estimate that Cuba will be stuck in offline mode, i.e. no home internet, until 2020 or even longer. And that was before Trump's move to roll back Obama's concessions, which only puts better, richer Internet that much further off. The most surprising thing about Cuba, after all those years of hearing about it inside the cradle of the Miami Cuban exile, was the real lived-in-the-moment nature of totalitarianism and what it does to people. In Orwell's fiction, political dictatorship remains an abstraction, some moral fable cloaked in binary judgments and populated by villains and heroes. But the reality in Cuba is much more mundane. There really is a banality of tyranny. It's not just all Arendtian hyperbole. People realize they're being ruled by autocrats, and they do whatever necessary to get by. They reframe freedom to mean the little square of movement and dissent the government grants them and consider themselves free as a result. Here's the tragic reality that the optimists in Silicon Valley don't realize. Technology isn't going to save, ruin, or otherwise seriously change Cuba any more than tourism did. The country embraced tourism in the early 90s and since then has served as a preeminent Euro trash vacation destination. But it turns out Western tourists don't actually pack democracy in their luggage when they come to gawk at tyrannical regimes like visitors in some immersive zoo. If the world has learned anything from the past two decades of Cuban economic liberalization, it's that what happens inside Cuba is a function of the regime's decisions and is almost completely unaffected by anything the international community does. My impression from the many interviews I conducted over two weeks in Havana is that change will come at a glacial pace, if at all. The centuries-old colonial facades will crumble while the people stagnate in a political repression more suffocating than any tropical heat. In the meantime, there'll be ads, there'll be memes, and there'll be cyberbullying, too. The busy minds behind El Paquete and SNET won't stop, their resourcefulness springing forth with whatever technology they manage to smuggle or contrive. The aces of Resolver will triumph over Complicado again and again. And one day, maybe they'll even win out over the source of all that Complicado, the government itself. No es fácil. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2.